Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? voice well you might see here but uh i am not morris um, i'm here with my friend eric reanimator i'm uh, tim from see here ghetto tim to some household of many uh we're here today to talk about uh two of our favorite albums morris asked us to uh basically uh take over take the controls of the mothership while he went off and uh Decided to uh, try to make some millions in a quick rich Ponzi scheme out in the French Riviera. So we'll see if he comes back. Here's the open he doesn't, but anyways, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, being able to take the reins every once in a while. So how are you doing, Eric? I'm doing all right. Doing, doing well. It's uh, kind of raining out here, which is nice because it's a uh, been kind of nasty the last couple of days. So, say that again. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the temperature's been getting a little, little much for my, for my liking. So, and yourself? Uh, I've had better days, you know. Uh, had a little uh, setback yesterday, uh, courtesy of a bicycle. But uh, you know, we'll see how everything turns out in about six weeks after I get this damn splint off my arm. But anyway, uh, before I forget, what we're gonna do today? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, two albums which I consider to be majorly, majorly influential in, in setting the stage for so many different variations of what we know as uh, popular music today. And what we're going to talk about is uh, some great guys from uh, Ohio area, the Dead Boys. We're going to get into uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty. And then... We're going to cross the waters, and we're going to look at one of my top five albums of all time, top five bands of all time, Killing Joke, with their first uh, self-titled debut that came out in 1980. So before we get to those uh, two records that we're going to hem and haw about, uh, what have you been listening to lately, Eric? When the heat came down, we were walking Cleaning up the kitchen, we were cleaning out the knees. We roped up all the side sheets and we sideswiped all the bricks and engaged in snappy pattern real slick. We measured up a rim a 
so the big thing for me is a uh, album that's credited to Jeffrey Morgan and Dean Motter. It's called Thrilling Women, The Lost Hair Pirate Sessions, 1977 to 1980. It was recorded uh, in the Toronto area and uh, featured the... Vocalist from the Diodes and um, Dean Motter is, was the kind of the hook for me. He's a comic book um, writer and well, I'm not sure that he's the artist as much as the designer. He does a lot of retro futurism kind of artwork. He did Mr. X and Terminal City. And right. In a great. I know Terminal City. You know Terminal City. Okay. Well, Dean yeah, yeah. Motter is the main the main guy behind that that look and that, that well that book the aesthetic the, the whole 1930s I guess what not quite what you call steampunk but probably what came right after it so Thrilling Women um, is just a collection of kind of electro pop songs there may be a little a little lighter topically than say Devo but definitely you know they're they're, they're not just techno pop Right, and you know they're they're not. I wouldn't say that they're super punky either, but but they kind of have that that science fiction edge to them, which is something I always like. Um, this album actually is not out as a physical release, as far as I know. It uh, you can get it on like Amazon or CD Baby, but it's just really catchy, you know, electronic power pop that's kind of in the wheelhouse of say Brian Eno or Kraftwerk. So cool, cool. And you know when you're talking about science fiction and artists and music. I was really thinking, and, and you mentioned Canada as well. Yeah. And the one thing that came to mind, in my mind, was uh, Michel Levin, otherwise known as Away, from Voivod. Oh, okay. And all all the fantastic artwork that he's done for their band over the years. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, how many, it's interesting to think about how many uh, musicians are actually artists that actually create their own content not not only like i say in a musical form but also you know the liner notes or the album covers or everything like you know i can only think of a number of artists not many but you know it's just interesting to see when you know people can actually they're creative in many different uh formats well uh, you know for for me one of my favorite artists is a guy named tom bagley out of out of calgary and he uh, yeah he does his you know, Forbidden Dimension. Forbidden yeah. Dimension, Call Me Psycho. But his day job is he's a freelance artist and he teaches cartooning to kids. And he definitely has a uh, an aesthetic and a style that's a very thick line 1950s, you know, science fiction cult kind of uh, kind of a thing that I just adore. Right. And then, and you know, another, right. one, another one of my favorites is a guy named, uh, called himself Kepi Gooley, who was in the band The Groovy Ghoulies. And he also has emerged as, as kind of an artist with a very cartoony monster, you know, uh, Loch Ness Monster Outer Space kind of aesthetic that's, that's actually quite kid-friendly in a lot of ways. And he's uh, he's kind of reinvented himself as a uh, solo act in the, in the last, I don't know, last 10, 10 years or so. And it's it's interesting to see that. But yeah, he's, he's definitely working on, on different levels. I was thinking of, too, uh, Tom Hazelmeyer, the head honcho of Amphetamine Reptile. When Hayes, you know, he had his own band, uh, Halo of Flies, but then he's actually put out all these uh, le- uh, carving, laminate carvings 
woodblock carvings and uh, prints out of all the for all the uh, AMRAP stuff now. He just did all these Melvins. Uh, he's been doing Melvin seven inches and Melvins releases for years, and he just did the new uh, Buzz Osborne uh, solo album, the acoustic one that he came out with. And yeah, like Hazelmeyer is another one of those guys where he transferred over to uh, you know from playing music into art. But like I say, it, it's it's interesting how there is there is a certain number of artists that do. Uh, oh, yeah. The default of that. John Langford from the Mekons is another one yeah. that's yeah, yeah. doing. If you look at any of the Bloodshot Records stuff, he, you know, his artwork is all over the place there. Right, and another one too. I was thinking of is Tim Kerr. Yeah, because Tim Kerr is a really uh, amazing painter now, and he's actually gone and uh, gone from playing, you know, like Boston punk legends, you know, the Dicks and the Big Boys and all that scene, and he's gone now into painting so i think it's very interesting and also as well i gotta mention you know uncle gary i mean you know gary floyd he's also got into art now as well Well, yeah a lot of these a lot of these uh musicians now are able to do art or writing or any number of things that that maybe were not part of the, the musician's future once upon a time right right but i think there's a difference between people being too old to be in a band and trying to, you know, be a starving artist mm-hmm. or people that actually have, like, a uh, vision or, you know, something that they need to get out there. But anyway, uh, anything else you can listen no, to? No, I was just going to talk about that. I would encourage people to go ahead and check it out. Right on. Give it a listen. Cool. Like I said, you can, it's up on Amazon and iTunes and CD Baby, so you can go ahead and sample it. Mm-hmm. that I've been really getting into lately, really enjoying, and they're called the Masters, Master Musicians of Bukaki. <laughs> and uh, these guys are pretty weird because it's, it, what the, they did, have you heard uh, The Secret Chiefs 3 before? I've heard, I know of them, and I've heard just a little bit of them. Right. Well, it's kind of that same field where it's almost like Middle Eastern, the uh, how can I say this? Experimental Middle Eastern soundtrack music, I guess, would be a good way to describe okay. them. Because, like, half the time, they could almost be doing the score to, like, a John Carpenter film. Mm-hmm. It's almost, and then the next thing you know, it's this Middle Eastern, like, Sufi, like, free, weird, like, desert kind of peyote trip. Like, you know, this, this, uh, like, uh, almost like, 
like I say, like the you know their their name, the spoof of their name is the master musicians of Tijuca. Okay. And you know, and, and it's almost like those uh, like that traditional Sufi uh, music that hypnotic. I mean, it's the kind of stuff it'll either it'll either annoy the shit out of you or you'll get it. There's no in between really because I, I find like with a lot of Middle Eastern music because of the high pitch and the repetitiveness and. You know, you either get into what they're doing and, you know, the hypnotic nature of it all, or you're just like, fuck this shit, man. Yeah. I can't, I can't do this, you know. And I find it's the same thing when the friends of mine tell me about, you know, stuff like Tenari Wind, or, you know, a, a lot of the, the desert uh, blues stuff, is everyone saying, man, this stuff is just the same riff over and over and over and over. And I'm just like, man, you know, you've got to basically sit and listen to it. You've really got to, you know, you've got to, you know, it's not something you put in, you know, where you go for a drive. It's something you're going to sit down with headphones on and something, you know, that it demands your concentration. It's not something that uh, you can put on while, you know, you're just uh, out mowing the lawn. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It, it, there's certain music that, like, the funny thing is, like, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I was having this discussion, I think, with Morris a while ago about how some music you can listen to at any time in any place but then there's certain forms of music where it's like no you have to sit down be in the right mood you have to be in the right place with a pair of headphones or whatever and it demands your full attention yeah and I've been I've been kind of listening to a lot of different things like that lately I'm listening to some early Eno it's the same way you know if I'm you know on a subway and I'm listening to Eno it's gonna put me to sleep you know yes yeah but if I'm listening to, you know, at home before I hit the hay, it's perfect, you know. Or, I, I, you know it, yeah, I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of wish that I could just go sit in basically a deprivation tank and listen to stuff like that for an right. hour or so just to just sure. to shut everything else out. And, sure. And you're right. It's, well, it's, it's about getting into that groove and that headspace. And that's like, uh, you know, pe- people don't understand that about stuff from the Velvet Underground or from the Stooges or from Kraftwerk or you know any and we'll probably talk about this actually a little bit when we get to Killing Joke this, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, I don't I don't, I don't want to sound like a dumb raver and that that's <clears throat> oftentimes my biggest barrier to getting into this music but um, you know it, it's, it's about letting the music kind of carry you away and, and experience it and Oh, yeah, and it's, absolutely. It's not necessarily the soundtrack to what's going on as much as it's the, it's the, the you know, it's the Pied Piper music that's taking you away from what's going on. It's, so. the, ener- it's the energy, too. Yeah. It's the energy. It's, it's all of it, yeah. It's magic is what it is. <laughs> but, no, it's funny because, you know, like I can listen to, uh, you were saying about being in a deprivation chamber or whatever. I find, for me, that's being on an airplane. Yeah. Like whenever, whenever I'm flying across the Pacific and I'm flying back to North America from Korea, I'll, you know, I have a select soundtrack that I throw on and I'm gone, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's, I mean, like, you're not going to sit on a plane and listen to rain and blood, you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> yeah. like, it, it's not going to happen. But, um, no, I mean, you know, stuff like, you know, stuff like Mogwai, you know, stuff like, you know, Floyd, you know, they're just things that. It'll take you out of where you're at at the moment, 
And the last thing you want to do sometimes is think that you're sitting on a fucking airplane for 13 and a half to 14 hours, you know, flying across the Pacific. It's the last thing you want to do. So you just want that music that's going to take you out of the element. talking about the 1990 1977 classic release from the dead boys young loud and snotty which pretty much says almost everything you need to know about this record but um it's the first studio album from dead boys who were originally from ohio they grew out of a band called rocket from the tombs and this album kicks off with one of the great all-time uh, punk rock songs, period. Can I say, can I say something to begin with? Now? Go ahead. First off, this album, Jesus Christ, from the beginning to end, this is all killer, no filler. Yes. The whole, the whole album. And I mean, you said, you know, coming out of Ohio... And I mean, to me, you get the Holy Trinity that comes out of Ohio. You get Devo, you get Perubu, and you get the Dead Boys. And it should be said that Perubu was the other band that grew out of Rocket from the Tunes. Right, right, right. And then you got, you know, you got the minor bands that came out of Ohio too, like the Electric Eels and other things like that. But this album, I mean, everybody talks about those Desert Island discs. Yep. This is one of them. This is one of them. And... You were saying, you were about to say, that it kicks off with Sonic Reducer. Yes. And the song was written by David Thomas and Cheetah Crone. Yes. So and Dave, Dave Thomas wrote the lyrics, but the whole thing is, like, there, this, this song is the, uh, it's the smoke on the water to punk rock. Yeah, and it's, it's a, it, to me, it's always been a direct... Uh, response slash uh, homage uh, riff on Search and Destroy by the Stooges. Right. And, and I, let's just say about Ohio that it's, you know, Eastern Ohio is almost, you know, it's three hours from Detroit, six hours from Chicago maybe, six hours from the East Coast. So it's right there smack in the middle of everything. Of, of the upper Midwest New England yeah. cultural setting and this I mean this was an area that was alive with garage music in the 1960s and it you know it's probably also probably six hours from Toronto it's not too far to Buffalo or Rochester so you had all of these these industrial cities that you had people with you know 
in the 60s especially, decent-paying blue-collar jobs that could afford a couple of music lessons and instruments for their kids. And, you know, these people were the, the weirdos and the outsiders, and they were the ones that were digging through old record crates and picking up every interesting-looking album that they, they could get their hands on, so... But I was going to say, like, the reason I said that this is like the smoke on the water of uh, punk rock is the fact that, man, it's just fucking scales. Like, the, that, that whole do 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 Like, how many kids sat in their basements and learned how to play? And it's so simple, but it's just so fucking devastating. It is. I mean, that, that riff is just so perfect, but it's so simple. Yeah, and it's and it's the energy and it's the it's the velocity of the way that they play it that really oh, yeah. really and I should say that the uh, the version of Sonic Producer here was actually not the original. The original was done during the Rocket from the Tombs era, right? And right. that that one is a great. I, I've heard recordings of Rocket from the Tombs doing the song, and and it sounds good. But once you get to the Dead Boys, you, it's like all the pieces come together. You know, I, I wanted to say too that what, there's a really crazy element. I don't mean to go back backtrack, but before we, we continue talking about any of the tracks, uh, there's a really weird thing though that the album was produced by Junior Abe. Yeah. And you know, and she was actually suggested by Hilly Crystal. And initially, like the the band was like. She's a fucking ballad singer. Like, what the hell? Like, you know, and like, she's this kind of chantreuse. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell does she know about us, right? But, it, man, they, they went together like stinking shit. I mean, they just hit it off like, bang. Like, you know, apparently, Stiff Baders, the singer for the Dead Boys, knew who she was. And as much as this guy was this weaselly little guy who, you know, barked out half the time almost like, he was like Daddy Lee mm-hmm. sometimes. He thought of himself as a crooner. Oh, yeah. And it comes out in the album. So then you can see where the connection between Junior Rave and, and the Dead Boys, you know, really comes together. It doesn't come together in the bombastic, you know, razor blade fucking nature of their, you know, their raw intensity. It comes out in the lighter songs. Yeah. Not anymore. That's where that's where it really comes out. But anyways, back to Sonic Producer. Man, this song has been covered by everybody and their uncle. I mean, holy shit, man. Pearl Jam, like everybody, like you name it, they've covered it. Yeah, look, yeah. It's it's it is the classic. It is the um I don't want to say ground zero, but it's it is one of the great Punk songs oh. of all time. Oh, Jesus. Like, you can't touch this thing, man. I mean, it's just, you know, when all, it's like all, it's like somebody's just plugging a raw, raw plug right in your head. Yep. And they just turn on that amp, and it's just that, like, it just, it's, oh, man. And, you know, uh, Johnny Blitz, I mean, like, that whole, the, the whole bass on that beginning. Like, it's just amazing. Yes. So, so let's, let's talk just a bit about the, the Dead Boys. Like I said, they grew out of uh, Rocket from the Tombs and in Ohio and then moved to New York City and were part of the CBGB scene. And unfortunately, they're considered part of the second tier 
roster of bands that, that right. played, played throughout that scene, but I think that really is a disservice because where the Ramones were injecting energy into 60s girl group music and the Talking Heads were doing, um, you know, arty stuff and Blondie was was also playing around with that 50s, 60s rock and roll. The, the Dead Boys were just loud and, and fast. And, I mean, it's not, that's all there is to it. I mean, the, the title could not be more appropriate. Exactly. Um, you know, this this is raw power hour era stooges just amped up. And, right. uh, you know, Stiff Baders, the singer, was uh, in a lot of ways, you know, he was pulling from Iggy as much as Lux Interior of the Cramps was. And, oh, yeah. You know, one thing about this band is, is, you know, the Ramones all called themselves, you know, Johnny Ramone, Joey Ramone. This is the lineup of the Dead Boys. Stiff Baders, Cheetah Chrome, Jimmy Zero, Jeff Magnum, Johnny Blitz. Yeah. I mean, that that just tells you right there that these guys, they, they have separated themselves from the culture. They are, you know, they, they, they have reinvented themselves. They have become this thing. Well, you know what's really interesting is how everyone always thought that, you know, certain cities, like bigger cities, were, you know, kind of the... Uh, the core of, of everything that happened. Like New York was where it happened. You know, where Chicago was where it happened. Or L.A. was where it happened, right? Mm-hmm. But what happened, actually, was that it was the smaller cities like Detroit and Cleveland and all these other places where everybody thought that everyone in New York was so mythical and so big that they had to be bigger and better than the guys in the big cities. So then when they got to the big cities and they brought it like the Dead Boys did, everybody was like, holy shit. Because these guys were full fucking on. Where everybody in New York, I'm not saying that they're all posers, mm-hmm. but I'm saying that what they did wasn't as, as uh, above and beyond as what the guys from the smaller cities thought they were. You, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah. well, the thing about second cities, and when we talk about... Seattle, you talk about uh, Athens, Georgia, you, you talk about Minneapolis, is that these were much more cultural little islands where people were limited in the amount of, uh, of maybe cultural activity that they were exposed to or had available to themselves. So they were able to develop and refine while still being able to live. Um, you know, you could have a crappy job and keep an apartment and, you know, work part-time and spend the rest of your time playing music or writing songs. And also there was there was a level of despair and discon- disconnection from the culture at large. If you weren't necessarily a jock in high school or a rich kid, you know, there was, especially in the Midwest, this is the, the 70s and the oil crisis and, and fe- good good-paying factory jobs were slipping away and you know, uh, you had this drug culture that, that was, you know, pervading America post-Vietnam. And so there was a lot of, lot of depression and a lot of reason for, for people to, to sit back and look at, um, you know, the, the state of disrepair that the United States especially was falling into. And, and that's reflected a lot in this music. And, and, you know, there's a lot of angst. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, I don't feel good, and the world doesn't feel good, and, you know, I don't fit in going on, especially on this this record. Oh, yeah, big time. Big time. And, you know, it's so funny because 
you know, it re- there, there's just so much here. Like one one thing that reminded me of uh, always makes me smile. Did you ever see the ad that they actually had with uh, Stiff Baders with Brooke Shields? Did not. You never seen that? No, I'll have to look that up. Oh, man. You've got to look that up. There's an image of Brooke Shields, and she's in a Catholic schoolgirl little dress, like a uniform, with Stiff Bader, and she's looking up at him with these innocent, like, doe eyes. And Stiff Bader just looks like a total scuzzbag. <laughs> well, it, it, it should be said that, that Stiff did go on to, uh, first of all, he did record a couple of uh, power pop albums after the Dead Boys, but he did go on to a, a minor acting career working with people like John Waters and... Yeah. Uh, well, he, he was in uh, Tape Heads. Yeah, and being in Tape Heads, because right. after the Dead Boys, he went to a band called the, the Wanderers. Yeah, and the Lords of the New Church. Which, yeah, which evolved into Lords of the New Church. Right. So, so let's get into the second track there, all this and more. Okay, which is, once again, another classic, oh. classic... Oh man, how can you go? Like you know, usually bands they'll they'll lead you in with a couple of tracks to start, and then they'll drop the bombs on you, right? Yeah. But with with the Dead Boys, uh uh-uh. uh with this one, it's like one you get it once in the head, and then once you know, and then by the time you sit, you know, you figure out what's happened, boom, you get hit again with the second track. It's just like that double attack, man, and it's it's amazing, you know. And the thing the thing about all this and more is it's it doesn't have the the loud part of, uh, you know, like Sonic Producer. It's it's a more reflective. It's not it's not a ballad, but it's definitely more. It's, I don't want to say softer because that's not the word. It's, but but it's not it's not just the same thing over and over. It's um, it, it's got a different kind of a feel to it. It's maybe a little more mournful. It, I think the tempo is slower. Is, is right. the thing. But it's got that same rage and that same. I don't know that that same feeling of of you know of the apocalypse. It's got a real sarcasticness to it that it's just it's just dripping dripping with venom and sarcasm, man. And, you know, and it's uh, it's just amazing because uh, the one thing that I was going to say that's kind of funny is uh, you know this. Uh, the Dead Boys, man, are a band that really couldn't couldn't pull it off today mm-hmm. in the kind of uh, PC world that we live in. Oh yeah, Be- because the lyrics alone, you know, all this and more, little girl. How about on the floor, little girl? You know, it it was it was definitely a, a product of its time and place, and a uh, you know a, a culture that was spinning towards towards where we are now, that is for sure. And it, it should be said that the the preoccupation with getting laid is laced throughout this album. You know, uh, all this and more, you know, caught with oh. meat in your mouth, you know, high tension wire, and, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the cover of the Syndicate of Sounds, Hey Little Girl. I mean, that that's all, it's all just, just sex and anxiety right there. Oh, yeah. And I mean, one of my favorite lyrics of all time, right? It's like, you know, can I describe what it's like to have sex with the lights on? <laughs> you know, it's like, holy shit, man. Now, it, you know, and the, the funny thing is, man, it's like this whole album is like, you know, 
hotter than a field, uh, you know, girls field hockey team, man. Mm-hmm. It's just like this whole album is just sweaty and slimy, and it's just, oh, man, and it's just oozing with that, ugh, like that, you know, like you say, sexual repression, you know, and it's just, and, you, and, and the funny thing is, too, is like, you know, if you're any self-respecting father, you know, if one of these fuckers came up to your front door looking to date your daughter, you'd be taking them out with a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah, you just turn around, walk them back out to the car and say, don't come back. You put them in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <clears throat> so yeah, this <clears throat> this album is, you know, it's, it's pure energy, it's pure, it's pure desire and lust and pure... <clears throat> pure, um, you know, rage, not rage so much as, uh, you know, there's, there's an element, this element that hovers over it of not fitting in and not feeling okay and not being, uh, not connecting that, that I think is what really makes this, aside from the, the music and the sound and the energy, that's what really in, makes this punk rock. One song, not anymore. Yeah, and, you know that song. Like you say, it, it exemplifies exactly what you're talking about. It's like I don't care. Don't push me away. You can't hurt me anymore. And it's like, and the guy's like, you know, give me a quarter so I can go to the movies and stay awake all night. I can't freeze to death. Give me a cup of soup. Like, give me anything, you know. And it's just like, and he's kind of saying, I need your help, but at the same time, he's saying, fuck you. You know, you can't yeah. hurt me anymore. Like, you can't do anything to me. Like, you know. But there's that kind of like you're leaning, you're leaning on a on a tightrope, on a wire between you know falling off and, and death, and, and trying to stay afloat. You know. Well, there's a certain certain amount also of, of boredom and uh, pain in this. You know, you oh, yeah. ain't nothing well, like, to do. Uh, I mean, down in flames. I mean, that's all about about being I, bored and, and being rejected and dejected. I think. I think, too, that this album, too, like, The Heartbreakers, you know, LAMF, has a real junky ache to it. Yeah. This album, this album's got a real junky ache to it. And it's just got that real, I don't know, man, like, just sleeping on a shit-stained, blood-stained mattress, you know, just, I don't know, man, it's just, a lot of people accuse the Dead Boys of being posers, you know, later on. Yeah. But it's, no, no, no. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And, you know, a real interesting thing I was going to say was, you know, playing on this record, too. I mean, you know, it's just so electric. I mean, it's just so, like, it's balanced, but it's not But it's not. I mean, like, they've got this ability, the band has this ability to just sound like as loose as shit but but just holding it all together raining it all in it's like it's like a fire hose they're just spraying everywhere but they still got a hold of this thing and it's like there's there's you know there's some kind of control to it but at the same time it's just it's still just chaotic man i don't know how to i don't know how to put it in the words it's just you know they've got this magic this this energy it's it's the they're they're able to, to hold the chaos together. You think about a rusty old piece of crap car that that's you know like four or five guys own and they're they're you know holding it together with spit and wire. That that's kind of I mean there's there's a certain shamble to it. A certain um, and part of it is the velocity 
it goes so right. fast. This is 35 minute record. The songs are, you know, I don't think there's a song, you know, over. They're barely over three and a half minutes. One of them's barely that. Except there's a medley at the end, but that's that's a little different. So I mean, it's it's not like it's not like it has time to fall apart. You know, this is well, a re- this is the record you put on while you're getting ready to go out. You know, it gives you 35 minutes to, you know, change your clothes and you know tie your shoes, and it's over before you're out the door. This is a record I used to bounce back to all the time. This, this is, is a record I used to like just go out and just ride and just lose it. But you know, like what you're saying about you know holding it together, I think that there's something that's something that really ties uh, the Dead Boys and Killing Joke is that both of these bands honestly uh, really were able to achieve. There's uh, Jordy Walker, the guitar player for Killing Joke, once talked about a moment where he said when they were all playing together, mm-hmm. where everything got really slow, even though they were playing fast. And, it, and they could just look at each other like everything was slow motion. And it was like something was happening beyond them, beyond their ability. And there was something that was kind of holding it together, like like the like the, the musical glue, so to speak, you know, where they, they it was beyond their means. They, they were just there. But it but there was something beyond them that was just keeping it going and keeping it going. And, and I think the Dead Boys with this album, that's exactly what it is. It's like there's this... You're like, holy shit, man! Like, it's just so, so electric and it's yeah. so perfect. But but then it's it's also so loose and it's so like, you know, like how the hell could they play like like? And the Ramones reach that point too. It's yeah. like that musical Nirvana. You know, I mean, like you know, when you're here, like it's alive. Holy shit! Like it's like they're there, but they're not there. You know, it, it's just they they're they're just kind of beyond. They've hit that zone where they're just you know. They're doing it, but there's something else that's holding it, holding it together, you know. It's like the finger of God or whatever you want to call it, but it's it's there, you know. It tapped into the source. So oh, yeah, exactly. So let's uh, let's wrap up our, our little chat on the Dead Boys here. It should be said um, that they couldn't hold it together all that long, much longer because they recorded a second album called, right. called We Have Come For Your Children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got some great tracks on it, but it never reaches the the level of uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty. And then they basically imploded. And right. Stiff Baders went off to do The Wanderers, which became Lords of the New Church. At a certain point, there was, a, a I guess, some reunions and, and a new Dead Boys, but never <clears throat> never really came back to the point that, um, that they had started at. Right. And today they stand now as, as kind of one of the great... Uh, punk rock bands of of that era that you know is ripe for people to rediscover. If you have uh, if you checked out the Ramones and Blondie and you know Television and the Talking Heads and you want to hear the the other side of this, especially oh. if you're a fan of Raw Power, you got to check oh, yeah. out Young Loud and Snotty. Yeah, yeah. I've actually got a seven inch single of the last thing that they ever put out all the way down. Yeah, and I think that was about eighty six when that was the last. The last reunion, about 80, 85 or eighty six, I think it was. But um, the one thing I wanted to say, though, to finish off about the Dead Boys in this album, is, you know, uh, you said earlier something about you know Stiff Bader's working with John Waters. Yes. And there's a real element of, I feel, I feel like John Waters is all over this record. 
for some reason. I don't know why, but I've always, whenever I've heard this record, I just imagine Divine. And it's just got, it's just got that kind of, that, that sleaziness to it without actually coming right out and saying, fuck you. Mm-hmm. They don't have to. It's, it, it just oozes that kind of, you know, perversity and repulsiveness. And, and it's like, you know, they go far with the lyrics and, you know, whatever they've got to say. But it's like, if you can't figure out what he's saying, forget it, man. You'll never will, you know. But it's just, to me, I could, I could sit and listen to this and watch Pink Flamingos. Like, this would make a perfect, yeah. perfect soundtrack to Pink Flamingos. I could see it, you know. Well, you know, I, I know that uh, the Divine had a music career and i wonder what a divine cover of caught with the meat in your mouth or oh yeah or i need lunch would be like yeah i could just you know but you no i get what i'm saying i hear exactly what you're saying yeah 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 yeah. so yeah i would say that this this album to me is like you know if you want to go back and, and listen to like loud bombastic you know like what american punk rock not even punk rock. I would say that this is just flat out amazing rock and roll. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, I I've actually played. You know, I used to make mixed cassettes. One side was Thin Lizzy, and the other side was the Dead Boys. And I used to, you know, give it to my buddies. They were more rock guys. And, you mm-hmm. know, shit like you know, like UFO and Scorpions and stuff. And they loved that shit. And they were just like, "Wow, man, what is this? This fucking rocks." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's punk rock. What? No, you know." Like, it it, it, it it really bridged. It did. You know, it, it really bridged, man. And and it still does. You, you, oh, yeah. you said everybody covers Sonic Reducer, and you know there's a lot of metal bands out there that are that are, you know, in their live repertoire. You're going to get some Sonic Reducer going. Right, and then you got bands like the Super Suckers who covered "I Want to Know What Love Is," and like you know you've got so many bands that have covered the Dead Boys, like not just Sonic Reducer, but you know. Well, all of that high-energy rock and roll stuff that I, I'm constantly talking about from the late 90s, early 2000s, oh, yeah. the Dead Boys are such a part of that sound. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, like, you think about it, too, right? There'd be no Gigi Allen yep. if it wasn't for the Dead Boys, you know? There, you know, some people would say, thank Christ for that. But anyway... Uh, Turbo no, Negro. I mean, Tur- Turbo Negro is the other one that comes to mind that oh, yeah. there would be no Turbo Negro without the Dead Boys. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, you know, they, they had, like like you say, like, you know, Stiff was trying to take some cues from Iggy, but he was completely very different in his, in his own ways, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. Most, yep. And, and also, I think it, it was only about a week and a half ago that was the anniversary of Stiff's death. Yeah, we, we should mention that. Stiff had probably one of the most unrock and roll deaths ever. Um, mm-hmm. He was hit by a cab and survived in Paris. But yeah. he did not know that he had internal injuries and wound up bleeding internally. I guess maybe that's a little bit rock and roll, but um, so he's no longer with us, and it's been yeah. probably twenty years, which is too at bad. Least he didn't, at least he didn't die in a bathtub like some fat bastard in France. Yep. Well, and he, you know, it, it, you can look at it and think, oh, he, you know, he just barely missed it because he could have been one of the elder statements of alternative music. In the '90s, I mean, I mean, so many of the bands that hit it big were were well, so inspired by the Dead Boys. If you if look, look at like stuff like Zodiac Mindwarp. Yep. I mean, look at White Zombie. I mean, like totally to me, 
you know, a lot of people would say now, like, Rob Zombie's nothing like Stiff Bader's. But if you look at Zombie in the early incarnations of, you know, uh, White Zombie, like, when they started, to me, they, they were a total New York band. There you go. Oh, you yeah. I mean? like, and he was totally influenced by Stiff Bader's, like, big time. Most definitely. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and uh, transition into talking about Killing Joke, and I'm going to let you go ahead and take the lead on this one. those bands that uh, mean so much to you that you really feel that it, you know by putting it into words it just cheapens everything but uh, Killing Joke to me are probably like one of the most influential bands ever in terms of so many genres I mean you know punk industrial alternative techno everything you know and it's no word of a lie when I can say that you know there's e- easily over, you know, 20 some odd dozen bands, popular bands, that all claim, you know, uh, inspiration from Killing Joke. I mean, uh, everybody from Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, you know, uh, Soundgarden, everybody. You know, and all different, um, the Orb, Alex Peterson actually from the Orb used to be a roadie for Killing Joke. Well, it's the guy be, who did all their visual stuff. It should be said that the famously, um, Nirvana's was it? Come, oh yeah, Come as You Are was yep. was eighties. Uh, uh, yeah, was lifted from the from the 80s. song eighties by Killing Joke. The, right. the bass line was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and it was really funny because there was a urban legend that went around that where uh, at a Nirvana show they actually had one of their roadies crowd surf up on stage and clock Kurt Cobain and serve him with a subpoena. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, Killing Joke, for those that don't know, were a band that started in England 1978. And they were basically uh, two guys from uh, another band. Um, well, it was Big Paul Ferguson was the drummer. He played with his band called the Matt Stagger Band. And then he met Jeremy Jazz Coleman. And they were all basically, you know, on the dole. And then they wind up meeting uh, Jordy Walker, and then they wind up meeting Youth. And then the four of them got together and started uh, mixing uh, up some uh, musical alchemy. And they started a band known as Killing Joke, which to many people are one of the most legendary bands that come out of England at the time of, you know, New Order. Sorry, before New Order, I meant Joy Division. You know, around the time of Wire, before Wire, they were they were right in between a lot of so many things that happened. You know, 
And there's people today that look at them, you know, bands like Amoebics, bands like Neurosis, uh, Godflesh, uh, the heavier end. And then also, you know, there's those that are in the dub, because Killing Joke was big in the dub as well. They, you know, there's a lot, like the, the big club scenes in England, they were all part of that. Uh, but the first album, this first album, to me, it was so groundbreaking. And it's so fucking far ahead of its time that even today when I put this on, I like to jerk people around and I tell them, well, when do you think this was put out? Oh, yeah, man, this just came out like two years ago, three years ago. And I'm like, try 33 years ago. And they look at me like I'm lying. And I'm just saying, no, no, it is what it is. So this album to me is just pure magic, man. And again, like the Dead Boys, you know, this album is just right from beginning to end for me. It's just magic. It's just bliss. Just the way that they were able to to pull it off. So my history with Killing, Killing Joke is, is definitely different. My, my brother is a big Killing Joke fan. And so I was always hearing him play their records. In fact, I, I got, I borrowed the music from him to listen to. And uh, so I, I gave this album about five or six listens, and it's a good album. It's solid. I cannot pick out any the individual songs, but I don't think you're meant to. This isn't an album of singles. This, this is an, an album, to me, that you, you put on and, and you have to listen to the whole thing, like we were talking about earlier. It, it's also very tribal. It's a march too. It's a walk. It, it's very tribal as well to me. It, yeah. It's it's got this yeah. this um, rhythm to it. This this energy that when you hook into it, it's it's like being in a trance or being part of a this, tribe. This, yes, exactly. And and you know the other thing that really stood out to me is the use of the keyboards. It's yeah. it, it's like. Um, Science fictiony, but not really more, more like dystopic science fiction, apocalyptic exactly. science fiction. You think, of, think of Orwell. Yeah. You, think of, you know, Clockwork Orange. You think of you know a darker future. I mean, at the time when this album came out, you got to understand, right? That this was right before Thatcher. This was right before the riots in England. You know, this was right, right before all that shit went down. This is the precipice of, of the fears of nuclear annihilation. That absolutely, I, I don't I don't know about anybody else, but I definitely grew up hearing that constantly. You know, this this is the era of Mad Max, but also of the day after. This is, uh, you know, as a member of Generation X, I can say that we were sold that, that the end of the world would happen in our lifetime. Right. Well, that's what this whole album really focuses on, too. I mean. You see, the thing is, too, is that this is a very political album, and it's very personal, but it's not beating you over the head with rhetoric, but it's actually putting ideas out there. You know, for example, like, you know, the ideas of isolationism, the ideas of, you know, dogma, the ideas of, you know, going back to primitive thinking as opposed to, you know, looking forward, going back to, you know, like the base core of what man really is as opposed to computers, as opposed to, you know, uh, advertising, as opposed to, 
you know, uh, political campaign slogans mm-hmm. and everything else. Like the whole the whole album is just for me. Listening to this album was you know people growing up in a shithole, and they did yes you know, where they grew up. I mean, you know, and growing up with looking at these factories belching out you know fucking giant Godzilla farts of smoke and toxicity into the air and looking at you know these streams of, of all this pollutant and shit and feeling like you can't get out of this bubble like you're in this kind of walled in you know kind of prison and looking ahead to the future and, and, and then having these people tell you brighter future brighter future oh just around the corner it's all gonna be a brighter future and they're saying fuck off I'm not having any of it yeah I, I know I know what's happening and you just, I can see it yeah you just look at the song titles on this album Requiem War Dance Tomorrow's World The Wait Primitive I mean that all speaks to a a world that, that's on the precipice of being over right and you know it's amazing because the initial track Requiem the keyboard in that, that do, 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 ding, 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 like, It's one of the greatest openings of any album I've ever heard, man. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but I just wanted to share something that was kind of funny. Uh, I went to Tokyo in 2008, and I saw Killing Joke. They did the reunion tour with the original four guys. First time in over 20 years, 25 years, that they played together. And while I was waiting for the band to come out, the majority of uh, the kids were all younger. They're wearing PPC and they're wearing, you know, wraparound shades, mm-hmm. wearing raincoats, these like late, uh, you know, PVC raincoats and shit. And in my mind, I was thinking, this is just like fucking Blade Runner. Yeah. And all of a sudden, over the PA, I hear this harpsichord. And then I hear a clacking of a keyboard. And then I hear Deckard 451. <laughs> and they came out to the introduction of Blade Runner and I was just like no fucking way and then the first song that they came out to was Requiem and as soon as the keys hit man that whole place people were just Ooh. up and down like apes on the floor like if people you know, if they had handed up bones people would have been beating the floor with bones just like 2001 like they were just Oh, it was amazing, man. It, it, and, you know, the hair on the back of your neck is just standing up. And then all the band comes out, and then Jazz Coleman comes out at the end, and he's just like, these eyes, like boiled eggs, rolled in the back of his head, and he comes out, and just like this demonic minister, like, you know, sound like out of pulpit. And it was just amazing. It was just amazing. Well, you know, the, the music, is, you know, Blade Runner is, is definitely what this is a soundtrack for, but also Watchmen, the comic, or, you know, something like... Dead Enders, which was a great comic that, that 
people may or may not know, but that kind of dystopic British 80s uh, future. I mean, this is this is what 2000, you... Uh, what do you call it? 2000 AD. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, Judge Dredd. Um, right. Oh, what? You know, um, Transmetropolitan, the, the comic, if anybody knows that. That's what this is music for. I mean, and that's... This is, this, this is you know, 19... This came out in 1980, so... You know what's what's big in the popular culture? In, I don't know about the UK, but in America, this is the end of the disco era. This is right. the, the beginning of the big '80s, the bright, shiny, bigger, more. And this is music saying, "No, this is this is the end." You know, this is this is a world imploding. You know, right. This, this is um, Max Headroom is around the corner. I mean, right. But here's here's a funny thing though too. Like you say, in America, disco was ending. And disco was really huge in England as well. And one thing, one element that's really amazing about this album is that, you know, there's a danceable element to this album. And there's a disco element to this album, too. I mean, Bloodsport, the song, you know, it's got uh, a chic... It's got that that Nile Rodgers bass, you know. It's got that real funky, like, it's almost like death disco. Like you know, a, a, a paca, apocalypso, you know, yeah. like apocalyptic disco. You know, it's got it's it's got. So that's what's really weird about this album is that it, it's it's got an ambient nature to it. It's got a danceable funk, like a fucked up funk element to it. it it's just got that nasty metal punkish element to it, the industrial element to it. I mean, this is before everything, but they actually just put all this shit together, and it worked. Well, and, and what what you're talking about reminds me of. P.I.L. The oh, absolutely. Public Image Limited, Johnny Rotten's band following the Sex Pistols is, right. you know, death disco. And also, we had talked about a little bit about what the Dead Boys, or after the Dead Boys, Stiff Baders being in the Wanderers and Lords of the New Church, which very much have this, that same kind of a feel, the same kind of apocalyptic end of the world. And, you know, the, the, the Wanderers was the rhythm section from Sham 69, the guitarist from the Damned and Stiv Vader's from the Dead Boys, right. and they were playing with the same images of, of this this decrepit, dystopic, digital future, and you know that's that's kind of where this fits in. And this, you know, the Killing Joke and PIL and the Wanderers slash Lords of the New Church, and probably a whole host of other bands are playing in this sandbox of. Right. You know, this is how it ends. This but is... Killing Joke, man, they, they were the first ones to really do it. Okay. They were the, yeah, and they were the first ones, you know. And what's amazing is, like, you know, the four of them actually, the original guys, say that they came together through magic. They, they, they had really believed like, that, they, that they thought that they would get together, these four separate guys, and they would do it and they did it you know it, it's kind of hard to explain I mean Jazz Coleman talked about you know well him and Ferguson were together they did some type of ritual okay where they figured that the next day two guys would show up at their door and two guys did and, and that was you know Youth and uh, Jordy but you know I was going to say that you know this whole the whole thing that they did man it, you know there's a thing about how the production on this record is just incredible. And it's so clean, but 
that's one thing that Coleman had always regretted is he always thought that the recording, the first recording should have been a lot more raw. It should have been a lot more, more uh, live as opposed to so uh, clean. But I think that there's a real coldness to the album, like a real sterility that adds to it. Yeah. And, and it's almost, it almost is like being in a hospital and the wall, you know, and, you know, like that scene in, uh, what the, what the, Jacob's Ladder, where they're, you know, hauling him down the hallway in a gurney, you know, and he's looking at these dirty walls and these, these faces and, you know, I mean, like it's got a real kind of a clinical feeling to it or, 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 a, or a real kind of abstract distance to the whole album. I mean, if it had been raw, like the live, like the live shows were, I don't think it would have as much uh, force as it has, you know. I think that the way that it was recorded so clean, it really makes it sound so pronounced. Now, has, has have they gone back and they uh, they remixed it at all to make it sound that more raw? Well, yeah, there's been remasters of the album, of the uh, first four albums or the first five albums. I've got the box set, but it's not it's not really anything really that different or you know that, that uh, noticeable. Okay. They've done dub versions of all this stuff too, right? Because I should say that uh, Youth, their bass player, he's a huge producer now. And he's actually worked with McCartney on the Fireman albums. He was the guy that did Bittersweet Symphony for The Verve. Yeah. And, uh, he's done all kinds of shit. And I mean, he, he's huge in the dub. And what's amazing is, you know, like there's a lot of bands that would actually take their music and say, oh, well, we did a dub version of it. And it just sounds like shit. Mm-hmm. But this is a guy that knows what he's doing. And actually, the, the, the music really stands on its own. It's incredible. So I want to ask you, what are, what are the standout tracks on this album for you? Well... Obviously, War Dance is, is, the, is the track that really, that really I, I, I know when I when I hear it. Um, like I said, everything else to me seems to be all part part of the, the same thing, and it's it's not something where the it's not like pop songs where you're like, oh, I like uh, you know that one track or whatever. You know, right. to me, the album's experience as a whole, but the one that really stands out is War Dance. And I know that what they did with songs like 80s later on, which I believe was later on, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's more of a single kind of a, or millennium from from a, from the 90s. I mean, those are very yeah. much more part of a, a single song mentality that you would you would see from a traditional band. But this is more like a, more like a Kraftwerk album or more like a, uh, I don't know. Uh, part of it actually reminds me a little bit of uh, Queensryche's uh, The Warning album, which was a, you know, they, they were a heavy metal, you know, kind of progressive band in the, the 80s, but they definitely also were playing in this end-of-the-world sandbox. And uh, so for, for the individual tracks, War Dance is the one that really stands out to me. And it's, it's got the tribal rhythms and it's the, the refrain and all the rest of that that really makes it stand out. I was going to say that live, the one track that always, always gets everybody off, gets them going, is the weight. Okay. 
which apparently yeah, was covered by Metallica. Metallica. Yeah, there's a mess of people that have tried to cover it, but but there's something about the keyboards on this album too that are so fucking evil. I've never heard keyboards sound like that. Like at the beginning of the wait, there's that like it's got that that really I don't know how to put it into words, man. It's just it doesn't sound like an instrument. It, yeah. so, it, it sounds almost like a machine. Like it sounds like some type of, you know, a, a furnace or a boiler or some type of, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a keyboard. It just like, there's, there's parts in this where it almost, they almost sound like uh, alarms or air raid sirens or something of that nature. The end of the world, as we keep saying. Right. Hold on, I got a guest coming in here. Max the dog, my sister's dog, just came into my room here. So he's going to jump up on the couch with me. Come on. Oh, he's going to make me play this game. Come on. Up here. All right. Come on. Still recording? Yes, I am. Give me a minute here. Maxwell. Oh, there we go. Hey, buddy. Hey, Max. Oh. Hey, buddy. He's very quiet though. All right. So the other, go ahead. Say, the other one that really gets me too is uh primitive. for Killing Joke is just sick. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't ask for guys that are more in the pocket. You know, I mean, youth. That bass bass lines that he came up with, man. You just you can't sound like that. Like this is the, the this is the thing with Killing Joke is that there's, there's bands that have tried to cover them, and it's the same thing I've said about the Ramones and ACDC. It's like, yeah. Maybe you can play those songs, but you don't play it like that. Now, you mentioned the bass, and, and this is one of my my um, takeaways about a lot of the great punk rock music out there is that it's got to have a good bass line, and oh, that yeah. so many bands do not understand that. Right. You know, a, a, a good bass line will hook you in and, and will, will carry you through a song. And so much of, of the focus is on the singer or the the guitarist in so many bands, but but a bass line, and that's like I was saying earlier about Nirvana lifting the bass line from Killing Joke. That it, it's it you gotta have you gotta have that bass to, to build your the foundation of your music on. Well, you know the one thing I wanted to say too about this album and about Killing Joke was that you know they they were often accused of being. Um, fascists mm-hmm. you know, and they're often accused of because uh, there was a compilation that they put out and it was called laugh I almost bought one and the front of it had uh, the Nazis with a Catholic priest actually uh, saluting them the Sikh heiling the Nazis and blessing them as he walked through walked 
between a, a line of two Nazis. Yeah. And people were like, what the hell is that all about? But if you know the band, the band was basically just showing, displaying the hypocrisy of the Roman Catholic Church and how they caved in. It's like one form of control caving into another form of control. And it's, you know, and it's a, it's a joke. It's a laugh. It's, you know, it's, it's deplorable. It's disgusting. So they weren't, they weren't, they weren't basically looking at this as a good thing. You know? And I mean, with all the dystopian uh, nature of the band, a lot of people would say that, you know, they were very almost, you know, encouraging, you know, uh, how could I say, uh, social Darwinism. You know, they were encouraging a new age or they were encouraging, you know, hooliganism and violence and that kind of thing, but they weren't at all. They were basically saying, look, you know, you're all being fucked. You're being manipulated. You know, everyone's being screwed with by the powers that be, whether it be religion, whether it be industry or whether it be government, you know? Yeah. And that, um, yeah. that goes right back to what we were mentioning about PIL was doing the same thing. Sure. You know, uh, this, this was the, the basically the dominant theme in kind of more science fiction-y 1980s music was, you know, cyberpunk. This, this whole dystopia, well, Blade Runner. Uh, well, just... I think... Go ahead. I think the thing is, I think that a band like Killing Joke couldn't have come out of America. It just, they couldn't have. No, There's and... No way. And, like I said, the only the only band in the United States that it even reminds me of their aesthetic, like I said, it's Queensryche, and that's, you know, late 80s metal. Right. I mean, right. Right. All right. Well, I would say to anybody out there that hasn't listened to Killing Joke, I implore you to pick up the first couple of albums, and I can guarantee you right now you won't be disappointed. And, I mean, if you're into anything like Coil, I mean, Wire... Or you're into like you know magazine or any of the early '80s stuff that came out late '70s. I, uh, I say this is like one of my top five albums of all time. I would, I would and say it's really hard for me to talk about this because it's just like you know I was thinking, man, I can't wait to get on and talk about this record, and then it was like, oh geez, like how can I put this to words? It's like, uh Well, it's it's definitely a record that that's being added to my my rotation of things that I'm going to listen to. It, it really is a good record. It really is not what you would expect in a lot of ways, but there is it's accessible. I don't want I don't want to sound like it's not accessible. It definitely is. Um, it's one of those records that you know you want to sit down, put your headphones on, close your eyes, you know, um, check it out. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I like to. Uh... Before we head out here, I'd like to thank Morris for giving us this opportunity to yes, thank uh, you. shoot the shit, chew the fat, and uh, we hope he's doing okay out there in the French Riviera with his Ponzi scheme. And uh, we want to plug a couple of podcasts. Uh, sure. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, of course. Absolutely. The And, and the rest of the podcasts in the community, the, um, the list. Cold Muscle. Yep, Cult of Muscle. They're crushing it, man. How much yeah. you been lifting? Yeah. Uh, the See Here podcast. Which, oh, I heard those guys suck, man. Fun. Well, I, you know, I, I I always listen to it and I always enjoy it, and it's uh, it's interesting the dynamic because between Wendy giggling and 
Morris seeming a little taken aback by some of this stuff. You know, it, it's got this weird dynamic. Uh, trashy trio, of course. Oh yeah. The uh, the they list music. The silver and gold bastards. Yep. The, the list music podcast. Yeah. Uh, outside the cinema. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's a whole list of, of, of podcasts that, that like, just keep on going. Uh, Freddie, everybody at Night of Living podcast. Uh, Feed My Ears podcast. Yeah. And uh, for me, I just wanted to say, I want to thank everyone that, that's checked out the, the bonus episodes I've been doing for the Love That Album, the compilation yeah, series. Uh, you, this will see, there's going to be one that went up recently about pub rock. And then it should be this episode of regular Love That Album. Ozzy pub rock. Yep. And then the next one is going to be... Uh, well, it's going to be a compilation from the, I guess, the late 90s. I don't have the date in front of me. Called uh, Music to Get Lost to While Driving at 3 a.m. And then I'm going to talk some Black Sabbath. So, look forward to that one. So, uh, anything else, Tim? No, I just want to say thank you for giving me a chance to uh, sit down and uh, have a good time. No thank problem. You. No problem. So, for the whole Love That Album crew, uh, I'd like to say, uh, be safe out there, everyone, and keep listening. Yep, take care. All righty. Yep. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.